Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, and sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. I'm Walt Woodward. 2018 marks the 200th anniversary of one of the least well-known but most important events in our state's history, the passage of the 1818 Constitution. This document not only created the form of state government under which we live today, it instituted religious freedom in Connecticut at the same time it formalized state-sanctioned racism. In this talk I recently gave to an audience at the Old State House in Hartford, I discussed the road that led to the 1818 Constitution and what it did and didn't do. So without further prelude, here is Trouble in the Land of Steady Habits, How We Got to the Constitution of 1818. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the courtroom of Connecticut's Old State House. We're really happy to hear, have you here today. My name is Sally Whipple. I'm the executive director of Connecticut's Old State House, and we're here today for a free program um, that's part of our monthly series called Conversations at Noon. And this particular talk is the kickoff of a new six-part series commemorating the Constitution of 1818s. And we're also very pleased to be able to hold this series in this building where the Constitution of 1818 was discussed and debated. There's nothing like the power of place, and there's nothing like the Connecticut, um, like Connecticut's old state house to show off some of the important things that happened in our state over time and to help us think more clearly about what's happening in our lives today. I'm also very pleased today that we're working with Walt Woodward as the first speaker in this series. He is going to introduce us to the Constitution of 1818 as only he can. The story I'm going to tell you today is I've actually borrowed a title from someone who is a much better storyteller than I, uh, the great Charles Dickens, because my story is truly a tale of two Connecticut's. And I think because it's both such beautiful prose and because it applies in such precise ways to the conditions in this state as they move toward the Constitution of 1818, that I'm going to steal from him a bit further and use the first, the beginning of a tale of two cities, but not about France, not about England, but about Connecticut, circa right now, 200 years ago. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Now, which you thought it was in 1818 in this state depended very much on which side of the constitutional chasm you found yourself on. In 1818, the land of steady habits was on very shaky ground. This surprised people in Connecticut, many of them, surprised people in the country because Connecticut had long claimed the oldest, most stable, 
self-elected government in the country. Virtually from the 1639 Fundamental Orders and certainly since the 1662 Royal Charter, Connecticut had, more than any other colony, had virtually uh, independence. Whereas most, most colonies or most of the new states after the revolution had to scramble to write new constitutions and create governments, Connecticut stayed the course. They truly were the land of steady habits, but not in 1818. Things were different in 1818. There are a lot of things in this story that as you hear it play out, you're going to think, wow, you know, this could be today. And many of the things, many of the things that were going on have, they resonate very much with conditions in this state right now. But everything back then was different, including the very land. It was different than it had been when the first uh, Europeans came here, and it was much different than it is today. In 1636, when Thomas Hooker led his settlers across the wilderness to Hartford, it really was, mostly, this state was a primeval forest, what the Puritans called a wild and savage wilderness, desperately in need of civilizing. And for the first generation or so, for the Connecticut's who lived here, one of the best descriptions of them is that they lived in, they lived in little islands surrounded by a sea of fear and danger. They weren't used to woods, but they took them on as a Puritan challenge. By 1700, Connecticut had become a colony of farms and forests, small villages and new farm clearings in the out districts. It was, uh, you know, kind of, I think, what our image of a colonial uh, colony might have been like. By 1740, Connecticut was largely a land transformed. Farms, fields, pastures, and woodlots. People traveling through the country now talk about the incredible vistas that they see from the hilltops as they're going across the state. They see so far and they see so much because there is so much deforestation. 50 to 70 percent. By 1770, in some places, but only in some places, Connecticut, I think, reached a peak of, uh, of its uh, land richness. John Adams, who came to Connecticut in 1770, uh, seeking cure for a host of, delis of, of malaises, he traveled around the state and he talks about a journey he took on June 8th. He said, I have spent this morning in riding through paradise. My eyes never beheld so fine a country. From Bissells in Windsor, that's the ferry, to Hartford Ferry, eight miles, is one continued street, houses all along, and a vast prospect of level country on each hand. The land's very excuse me, very rich, and the husbandry pretty good. This is a stuffy Bostonian looking at Connecticut and saying, wow, it's amazing here. Now, he was talking about the river, but when he went home, he said, I wish I could take the Connecticut River back to Braintree. So, Flash forward uh, from 1770 to 1818, where, except again along the river, Connecticut is essentially a wasted land. The woodlands are diminished, the soil is depleted, 
generation after generation of primogenitor has taken farms that once could sustain families and chopped them up and divided them up till they're too small for a family and they're too infertile even if they were big enough. It's a tough time. By 1818, there was not enough good land left in Connecticut and there were far too many people for that land to support. In 1818, the climate was different too. We have our own climate headaches today. We worry about climate change, uh, a warming trend that seems to be really threatening. Not the problem in 1818. Connecticut was colder. It was much, much colder than it is today. In fact, Connecticut was coming to the end of a period climatologists call the Little Ice Age that lasted from 1400 to 1850, four and a half centuries of incredible cold. Pay attention to the paintings that were made in the 18th century of Connecticut and New England. You will frequently see that they are paintings of cold, really tough winter environments. Why are there so many of those paintings? Because there was so much cold and so much winter. It was colder and cloudier by far than it is now. Heating was required without question eight months a year, not infrequently 10 or 12. Harbors, harbors in Connecticut were frozen in in May, May. The growing season was two months shorter. If you already have land that's infertile and your growing season gets chopped by 60 days, think of the problems that causes on the hilltops. A Frenchman named Jean Jean-Francois Landolf uh, found himself in New London trying to repair a bunch of ships in November. He talked about a snowstorm he encountered. So much snow fell over a three-day period that it rose above the windows of the second story and blocked out all light. I had never seen anything like it. I was told this was an ordinary occurrence in the country. It's on the South Shore, New London, November. Six months later, maybe seven months later, he is trying to get out in May. He's had enough of Connecticut. Here's how he got out. This is on May 8th. 1779, New London. 12 gauge cannonballs were attached to the ends of four long saw blades. Those are factory long saw blades. Cannon pliers dug holes in the ice, which was still more than 15 inches thick. May 8th, New London, 15 inch thick ice. Long lines were traced to guide the blades of the saw, and 40 sailors removed the sawed squares from the harbor with launches. They kept it going from the harbor to the sea, which in another place he reports was over three miles away till he hit clear water. This is in May. This is New London, Connecticut, a different climate. 1810 to 1820 was the coldest decade of all in the Little Ice Age. And 1817, the year before the Constitution, is now known as a year without a summer because of the desperate cold of that year. What did that mean for Connecticut's? Well, 90% of Connecticut's were engaged in agriculture in that period. Shortened growing season, depleted soils, ever smaller farms made successful farming difficult, 
And by 1818, after the year before, the only option for many was to pull up stakes. They didn't start then, they'd been leaving for a long time. But by 1818, people were leaving the state in droves. In 1817, Oliver Wolcott, elected as governor, making his report to the General Assembly said, an investigation of the causes which produce the numerous emigrations of our industrious and enterprising young men is by far the most important subject which can engage our attention. How do we keep our young people from moving away? Sound familiar? 1817, 2018. Connecticut's population was stagnant. Uh, let's compare what's going on in America with what's happening in Connecticut. Between 1750 and 1800, the American colonies together, then the United States colonies, population increased by 353%. Between 1800 and 1810, it increased another 36%. Compare what's happening in the nation with Connecticut. 1750 to 1800, 50% one-seventh of the rest of the country, and from 1800 to 1810, 4%. 4% because already so many people are on their way out. Where'd they go? Well, at first they went up the Connecticut River to Vermont to lands that many of, many of these Connecticut men had seen during the French and Indian War and later uh, in the American Revolution. At the same time, they were heading west into a Connecticut area of, of what is now Pennsylvania that Connecticut had claimed as a result of its 1662 charter, a big chunk of Pennsylvania that they creatively named Westmoreland. Gotta love it. Um, in, you know, after much, much conflict and, and uh, falderall, Pennsylvania got to keep the land, so that was kind of off the table for Connecticut. So they went to New York, to upstate by the Finger Lakes, to lands being sold by, uh, largely by a Suffield native, Oliver Phelps, who had done tremendous investments with another par partner in the Finger Lakes region of New York. But by far the magnet for people was that part of Northern Ohio, which was then called and is still known to people who live there as the Connecticut Western Reserve. There are parts of this area between the Connecticut border and Cleveland in the northern part of the state that look more like Connecticut than Connecticut. And the people who live there are prouder of having Connecticut connections than many of the people you know here. It's a really interesting thing. I know it because I lived there for many years. Why did they leave? Let's reprise. Land shortage, soil exhaustion, environmental crises that threatened their ability to survive. Inequitable taxation in Connecticut. Isn't that interesting? Somebody wants to sell me a timeshare somewhere. Inequitable taxation. Uh, farms were taxed at a higher rate than commercial enterprises. Imagine if you're a farmer, you don't have enough land, the growing season is shortened, and you have inequitable taxation. How do people respond to taxes that they think are too high and impossible to deal with? They leave. Hmm. Another, another factor that was driving people out, and, and something that's going to be the subject of the rest of this, this and one other thing, were political oppression 
and religious intolerance. We don't often think of that as a reason for outmigration, but it's certainly part of what's going on here. By 1818, the venerated and long-touted land of steady habits tradition of political unity was shattered. Uh, the godly government of the 1639 fundamental orders was now seen by a majority, probably a small majority of people in the state, as fundamentally flawed. But that was a source of contention. Many years ago, a uh, historian scholar named Vernon Parrington had this wonderful insight about Connecticut that I think is, is really useful to try to understand how we got to 1818. He said that the government that uh, Connecticut set up with the 1639 fundamental orders was based on a deeply held Calvinist belief in the total depravity of human nature. It wasn't just that people were bad, it's that they were depraved by nature, very few were gonna be saved. This is God's, you know, the way of the world is that most people are damned from the beginning and can't be trusted. So if you are going to set up, as the fundamental orders called for, a, a godly government in this new world, you need to take steps to kind of keep those people in line. One of the first steps was to create a state-mandated church, an established church as the community moral enforcer, the grassroots moral enforcer, which all had to attend, except under very strict uh, circumstances, circumstances, and all had to support with their taxes. So you set up the church as the moral regulator of the community, and at the same time, you set up a government understanding as a fundamental principle that not just anyone could be entrusted with the reins of power. You needed to have the most respectable and the most godly people, people of proven worth and uh, uh, respectability to run that government. And that's exactly what they did by culturally and by uh, prescription. Connecticut had a centuries-long tradition by 1818 of rule by a preferred but not quite aristocratic elite. They definitely felt they were better than most but could mingle with all. That came to be known over the time, over the years, as the standing order of Connecticut. But it had run the politics of the state and it had benefited from the political preferment that comes with running the political machine for a long, long time. The standing order meant that certain families in Connecticut became a hereditary elite. Many of the names we still know as the great Connecticut families, we know them because they've had power from the beginning. Those people were expected to hold and to repeatedly be elected to political office, there to set high standards for themselves and others. The 1662 Charter, even more than the Fundamental Orders, enabled a self-perpetuating preferment in politics, in the ministry, and later, once they established it, in the college. So the standing order became a self-perpetuating elite. This really shows how it worked. Look at the tenure in office of the governors of Connecticut between 1659 and 1810. Remember, 
Governors stood for office every year. The term was one year. So when someone like John Winthrop Jr. serves 19 years, Robert Treat 13 years, Gordon Saltonstall 16 years, you see that this is a system that tends to reinforce this idea of a hereditary elite. Two families, the Winthrops and the Trumbulls, held that, those two families held the governorship for one third of this century and a half period. Two families. So it clearly is, the standing order really is, you know, a kind of quasi-aristocracy. Well, it's not surprising, given this long tradition of a stable hereditary rule, that they, you know, they felt like, we've got this down. We, you know, we know how to run a stable government. That after the Americans won independence in, well, after Yorktown and the independence, they won the war in 83, I guess, or it was officially over. Um, Connecticut had no problem saying to the rest of America, you know, we've got it. We, we know what needs to happen here. We are the model you should follow in this new nation. We think of America, well, some of us think of America uh, still as a great world power, many as the leading nation in the world, perhaps. Uh, but that certainly wasn't the case for America in the early days of the Republic. It was an experiment that most people thought doomed to failure. And they thought this idea of 13 colonies working together in a government, it's just never going to work. And over the first two or three decades of the nation's existence, a series of big crises and many crises, some national or some, some state, some national, some international, really would seem to convince people that those Americans just stand by because it's, it's, there'll be, somebody will take control again. But not Connecticut. Connecticut said, you want stability? Follow us. Noah Webster in 17 Sketches of American Policy, 1785, it was after a, it was an extension of an article he wrote in the Hartford Current, said quite explicitly in a, in a pamphlet that helped pave the way for the Constitutional Convention, Connecticut shows how power can be allocated among a central authority, subsidiary jurisdictions, and individual freemen in such a way as to ensure both liberty and order. Such a government is of all others the most free and safe. The form is the most perfect on earth. This is a standing order saying, look at us. You want stability? This is the, this is the place. It's that sort of belief that Connecticut had figured out how government should work that I think underpinned the moment at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 when in July it absolutely went to gridlock because they couldn't agree on representation when two members of this standing order, Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman, stepped forward to advance the Connecticut Compromise the decision to have a proportionally representative House of Representatives and an equal representation Senate that, excuse me, became the model that held the Constitution together. Why Connecticut? Why at that time? In part because Connecticut thought it had the right answers. And they needed answers in this period. Look at all, just 
Think about it. You people who know your history already know these, but think about it in the context of a new country that people believe is unstable, all that they were facing, all the destabilizing forces. Shays' Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, the XYZ Affair, the reign of terror in France that divided Americans over how do you react to the terror. The Hamilton-Burr duel in which one of the nation's vice presidents shoots to death the Secretary of Treasury. Is this a stable government? The Haitian Revolution that made southern slave owners fear that their world would come apart in the middle of the night. St. Arthur St. Clair's defeat at the Battle of a Thousand Slain in Indiana, the worst Indian defeat of an American army in history. The Chesapeake Affair, when a British ship boarded American ship and impressed soldiers, not in international waters, but in the Chesapeake Bay. What kind of country allows that to happen? It's certainly not a strong one. Meanwhile, Connecticut and this building, this very building that opened in 1796, look at this building from the outside. What do you see? You see Connecticut's proclamation that we are the stable country you want to be. We have what you need, what this nation needs. I, every time I see this building, I think that this is the standing order's kind of finest statement. During this period, the, the, the Connecticut is engaged in a kind of media blitz, promoting this vision of Connecticut government as a national ideal. It's a group of people, most of whom are staunch standing order people. I know Joel Barlow is the outlier, but they are issuing a group of pamphlets, tracts, poems, odes, whatever, and either implicitly or quite explicitly, the message of all of these things is that Connecticut is the model. The standing order here should be the standing order in the nation, including uh, a recent book argues quite persuasively, I, I want you all to go home and order or call your library and say, I want a copy of United Taste by Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald, one of the best books on Connecticut history I've read in decades. They did a beautiful job of synthesizing this period. They argue that the first American cookbook was actually a kind of federalist tract promoting this same vision. Theodore Dwight, president of Yale, in 1801 said, Connecticut exhibits the only instance in the history of the nations of a government which has stood the test of experience for more than a century and a half with firmness enough to withstand the shocks of faction and revolution. Well, there it is in two sentences. This is what we offer. Worked in some places, it seems to have, unless this was meant to be satirical, the Essex Gazette in Massachusetts reported, in the state of Connecticut, they're making rapid advances to becoming the guide and pattern of all the states. Well, success, maybe. Now, the problem was that if you were a member of the standing order, if you were one of the hereditary families who had benefited from centuries of, or from a century and a half of elite status, generations of elite status, of political preferment, of patronage, of all the spoils of office, of having the best land. The world looked pretty darn good. But if you weren't one of them, the best of times, 
was anything but the best of times. And this underlying dissent that the Federalists kept pretty good control of began to come apart when America devolved into a politics of parties. Um, we think of the standing order as being prime exemplars of, the, of federalism and the federalist state. And the federalists, federalists, of course, were centered in New England. They believed in a strong national government who by, by elites, uh, close ties to Great Britain, and again, Connecticut's standing order is, you guys should really look at this, we got something for you. They were opposed by su primarily Southerners and Westerners, uh, led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. They wanted a more limited populist government, close ties to France and the French Revolution. France has copied us and it is the people's revolution. Um, and they were the party that appealed in many ways to Connecticut's excluded and disenfranchised classes. But the Federalists were good at keeping them essentially tapped down until uh, 1800, even though they were truly on a collision course. Who were the Connecticut's excluded and disenfranchised? People not members of the Congregational Church, Baptist, Methodist, and sometimes, but not so much right at this moment, Episcopalians. Small farmers and others pressed for land, the people who didn't have the Connecticut River floodplains, the people who had the hilltop farms and didn't have land for their children all who felt excluded from patronage and uh, political power, the sitting ordered, who didn't like the standing order ordering them around. Immigrants and newcomers, and you know, th they were all divided up. It was a balkanized group of dissidents, largely, and before 1800, these people either laid low or they voted with their feet. But the great turnaround came when Thomas Jefferson became president in 1800. This was one of the great moments in American history. And the more I look at today, the more I realize what an extraordinary event that was. When John Adams defeated, embarrassed in an election, by in an election that he believed he lost because the Constitution gave the South extra voting power because of slavery. Imagine how that sat in John Adams' righteous craw. But he still gave up the government to a party and a man he despised because that was what the system called for. This, this peaceful revolution of 1800 is one of the truly great moments in American history. And it had very important effects in Connecticut because suddenly all these dissidents now had a base of patronage and a source of preferment and power that they'd never had before. Led in part, one of their leaders was Abraham Bishop of New Haven. Uh, they now had access to high paying federal positions in the post office department, in the customs houses. Suddenly, the Republicans have a base. Um, they now also find a voice. They fight the standing order by calling for a real state constitution, not these old documents you've ruled under for ages. We never had a people's constitutional convention. We need one. They sought alliances with the other disenfranchised groups, the, uh, the different religious groups, and 
Over the next five or six or seven years, they became a significant minority in the General Assembly. They were, uh, the standing order had a vocal opposition, and they didn't much like it. Um, these people would support the Jeffersonian, Madisonian policies quite vocally, and they were just railed against by the Federalists. One of the things they did unstintingly is to call for disestablishment of the church, which appealed to all the minority groups. Federalist response to this Republican challenge was hard. They used the instruments of power to kind of tighten down, tighten down the controls on how these Republicans could use their voice. They further restricted the popular uh, ability to vote against the standing order. In 1801, they passed a stand-up law I'm not going to get into it except to say that it made you express your opposition to all the people in power very publicly, very vocally, in a state that would hold it against you if you voted the wrong way. They defended the charter-based government as a real constitution. They did that over and over again. Importantly, they placed control of elections and election disputes in the hands of Federalist-appointed justices of the peace. So if you've got a close vote in a town, if you've got hanging chads, who decides whether the chads are valid or not? It's somebody you appointed. They attacked the Republican patronage positions as extravagant, and they were. The Abraham Bishop got really good money, as I think the postmaster of New Haven, so they were vulnerable in that regard. They fiercely opposed Jefferson's policy, and this won them a great credit, as intentional attacks on New England trade. So what are the issues that are dividing these two parties as they now are beginning to lock horns? The established church, the sitting ordered say, no one should be taxed to support any church to which they do not belong. The standing order says, Good government cannot exist without a mutually supportive relationship between the state and the church. Propriety and morality demands it. An independent judiciary. The opposition says judges shouldn't be dependent on the legislature who did appoint the judges and could take them out of office. The legislature shouldn't be able to override judicial decisions. The, the, the final court of appeal in the state of Connecticut was the Federalist-dominated General Assembly. When all else failed, you could take your case there. What the Federalists said is that the best way to ensure enforcement of the law is to retain the ability to restrain or replace judges quickly when they failed. So they like their system plenty good. And of course, there's a question of who should vote. Um, what the opposition said is that all men, and by that they meant all white men, should have the right to vote without oversight or interference. What the Federalists said is that you need to have skin in the game. Only men of property with sufficient investment in the state should have a voice in its operations. On church matters, they took sides and they gathered allies. Uh, the establishment congregational ministers and Federalist elites reacted. They said, now, wow, we're really under threat by this opposition. They had revivals. There were great revivals in Connecticut in 1801, 1808, and 1813. So while the wagons are circling against them, they're getting their moral fiber amped up to fight back. Methodists and Baptists 
continually resented being taxed, the stigma of being certificate men, of having to go kind of ask permission if they could not attend the congregational church and attend their own. They sided with the Republicans who introduced very early toleration legislation uh, and that won them a lot of allies from the dissenters. The Episcopals seemed to side with the Federalists as a, you know, they, they shared a lot of the same values and, you know, the same teacups and the same manners. Um, and, they did, and, and the Federalists knew that the Episcopals were a natural ally, so they found ways to support them with state funding on different things. So the Episcopals tended to side with the Federalists and give them a majority. Now, what was it like in Connecticut in 1810? How divided was the state? How much did this political conflict boil over into regular life? We see political conflict starting to boil over into personal relationships now in ways that I haven't seen in my lifetime since the 60s. And it was so much worse in Connecticut in 1818. This is a Republican writing in the Hartford Times saying that a person in Connecticut, meaning a Federalist anywhere, would not employ or buy of a Republican if they could possibly obtain the same of a Federalist. Do business with that man? Never. Person moving out said, emigration or imprisonment seems to be the only alternative. Federalist policy has driven Republicans to this dreadful situation. They must leave that party or this state. You want to know why they were leaving? They were leaving because the gates were closed to them almost everywhere. Party tensions, of course, were exacerbated by Jefferson's response to the British and French disregard of American neutrality in the Napoleonic's wars. The keystone there was the embargo of 1808, which caused a severe economic crisis in New England. Trade with Caribbean was hampered, none, no shipping or shipbuilding. That really hurt the Republicans' image. They were kind of on a roll. 1808 comes, and suddenly they look like the disloyal opposition. Um, some interesting things happen in this period, too. The Federalists, you know, I grew up in the 60s when they were talking about interposition and nullification and states' rights during the Civil Rights Movement. And I always believed that the South, through the Civil War uh, and, and through the Civil Rights Movement, they were the ones who were willing to sacrifice the Union for their own party. But look at here. This is Federalists in New England, in Connecticut, asserting their right to nullify U.S. laws in the 1810s. They said it's our duty to interpose our protective shield between the rights and liberties of the people and the assumed powers of the central government. Interposition in Connecticut before anyone else. Go figure. How about this one? It must not be forgotten that Connecticut is a free, sovereign, and independent state that the United States are a confederacy of states. The same constitution which delegates powers to the general government inhibits the powers not delegated and reserves these powers to the state. We don't like it, we don't have to do it. The War of 1812 was sort of the crisis point for all of this in many ways. Connecticut hated the War of 1812, vilified it as, Je as Madison's war as a Republican war. 
For two years, they, they, they resisted even helping in the war effort in many, many ways. And finally, all the New England states were so mad at this war that they agreed to gather right here in this building in December of 1814 and send some ultimatums down to the government in Washington, expressing their displeasure at the conduct of the war, their anger at the failure of the federal government to protect the New England states, and their thinly veiled threat that if the, uh, if the government in Washington didn't pay attention to these demands, they would meet again, and what might happen? Well, many people thought what might happen is secession. Here's what one paper said as they were anticipating the Hartford Convention. But I shall be told this measure will produce collision. A dissolution of the Union will be the consequence. That will depend not on us, but on them. That's presuming they will be so wicked and unjust as to force us, coerce us, to perform uh, our part of the obligation while they refuse to perform theirs. If they should do it, it will be they who dissolve the Union, not us. That's not so thinly veiled, is it? The Hartford Convention, when they, left, when they left this building, everybody was like, we're sending delegates to Washington, we're gonna go tell them we want, you know, we have our list of demands, if you don't do it, you're gonna pay the consequences. This is without question the worst example of poor political timing in American history. They left in December 15th, they were in Washington right at the beginning of January, and look what happened just as they're going to present their demands. Ship comes in from Europe saying, well, the War of 1812 is over. The treaty has been signed. And then to make matters even worse, right, Matt? In New Orleans, Andrew Jackson beats the British Army, and it looks like the Americans, even though this wasn't the case, the war was already over, the national pride is completely inflamed because Andrew Jackson beat the British at New Orleans, and the Americans won the war. And the That was beautiful, man. Such power. Anyway, so how bad did the Republic or the Federalists look after that? Plenty bad, terribly bad. They were humiliated, disgraced. It frankly broke the back of the party. Here's an editorial cartoon showing them leaping into the arms of the King of England. They're they, you know, they're cowards. They're, they're, it and what it did was it shifted the equation in favor of the Republicans almost overnight. Hartford Convention disgraced the Connecticut Federalists, empowered their enemies. So how did the Republicans capitalize on it? They knew their moment had come and they acted quickly. They created a new party and it was like they had the best social media guy in the world at the time because they named the party, not the New Republicans, the Toleration Party. Who can be against toleration? It's absolutely fabulous branding. Uh, they picked an ideal candidate, son of a great Federalist, a former Federalist, Oliver Wolcott Jr., one of those great family names. He ran for government on the toleration, or governor on the toleration uh, platform. They put together a platform that allowed them to build a coalition of disgruntled minorities who might not be willing to be Republicans, but they were all about toleration. 
After 1815, the Federalists did their part also by completely alienating the Episcopals over money. And I'm, I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. Others will. It's an important and a great story. But the fact of the matter is, Federalists withdrew funding Episcopals expected, and the Episcopals said that, you know, we're done with you. They went over to the Toleration Party, and now you had a Republican majority in Connecticut. In 1817, the Toleration Party elected Governor Wolcott, and they took over the assembly. In 1818, they had both houses and the assembly. They called the Constitutional Convention of 1818. And we got this amazing and wonderful document that so few Connecticans know much of anything about. To, I think it's to our discredit. Um, how did it change the 18, how did it change government? We no longer had an established church, a very big move for this state. We now had an independent executive. The governor was no longer a creature of the legislature. He gained more power, he got a separate cabinet, and he could in fact propose legislation. We got a true bicameral house, not a governor's council and an assembly, but a separate senate. We got an independent judiciary, not appointed by the legislature. And in the, I think the great, to the great shame, and the only great shame of this convention, uh, they institutionalized universal white male suffrage. Connecticut had outlawed blacks voting, had, had decided against it in 1814. We were beginning to get free blacks, but they institutionalized it by, uh, by institutionalizing white male suffrage they, by leaving out everyone else. It's not in what they, they didn't say, but what they said. It's the word white. So that was the shame. Now, why does the Constitution of 1818 matter? Well, I hope you saw all the resonances with Connecticut today and sort of the problems we have. But uh, you probably can't read this, but when I think about this, I think of all the factors that came into play over this one constitution that sit today as issues we need to think about and deal with and have faced and will face over and over again. What factors lead people to fundamentally reorganize their government? Have you thought we maybe, maybe need to change our party system in this country? Possibly. How do people change government that no longer meets their needs? What's the best way to organize a government? What kind of people should hold government office? How should candidates for office be chosen? Really important. What kind of people, what kind of people should be able to vote? What kind of people, more important, should not be able to vote? Does the way people cast their ballots in an election matter? Which branch of government should have the greatest authority? Should religion play a role in government? Should government play a role in religion? All those questions were on the table, and they fought over them long and hard, and they came up with answers in a document we call the Constitution of 1818. There's much in it for us to think about. There's much in this story that I think provides thought and maybe, maybe some guidance for today. So that's our tale of two cities. 
It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's just how you felt about it at the end depended on how you felt after the convention of 1818. Thanks so much. <clears throat>